0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in November 2006.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing.
1: Today we're joined by the producers Fran and Barry Weisler. Welcome, Barry, Fran.
2: Thank you. Glad Uh, to be here, John.
1: A few uh, credits over the last couple of decades, Uh, most recently, Sweet Charity, the revival with Christina Applegate, wonderful town, that revival with Donna Murphy and later Brooke Shields, Annie Get Your Gun, the revival with uh, Bernadette Peters, the still long-running revival of Chicago. Greece, the revival with Rosie O'Donnell, way back to Otello back in uh, 1982. That's right. But a big date coming up, November 14th, the 10th anniversary of Your Chicago on Broadway, which was originally on Broadway in 1975. Then it played five performances at New York City Center, part of the Encore series. It was acclaimed and it was revived by you guys after that. So how did that get going from Encores to where it is now on Broadway?
2: Uh, Well, Fran, I'll take that uh, question. You can add to it. um, no one truly wanted to transfer the production that was shown at encores, and Fran and I couldn't quite believe that because the Saturday afternoon we saw it, um, it, it just bowled us over. It was a marvelous, wonderful, magical piece of theater. Uh, you were not involved; you were just audience members. No, we just just went to see it, uh, mm-hmm. heard nice things about mm-hmm. it, but uh, it wasn't nice. It was amazing, uh, and we uh, immediately called John Cander and Fred Ed, b- who were friends of ours, uh, we having done Zorba and Cabaret before this, and uh, asked them if we could please throw our hat in the ring to bid for the property. Uh, And both of them said, you don't have to throw any hat in. Nobody wants it. It's yours. (laughs) And that still, to this day, amazes uh, Fran and me, uh, that no one saw... The, the quality, the entertainment value that was inherent in this production. All they saw was a band on stage, the performers pushed down to the fourth stage, and uh, all our lovely colleagues thinking that no one would pay $100, although it wasn't 100 in those days, what was it, about 75 or 85 Nobody would pay that price to come see what they, quote, thought was a concert. Uh, We saw it differently. We saw it as a um, a developed, creative piece of theater. And the orchestra on stage gave it an environment uh, unlike anything Chicago has ever enjoyed before.
3: That's true. And when I called John and Fred, I remember when we said, we know people must Mm. be standing in line. And they said, no, you've got the show. We couldn't Mm. even believe it. And finally, I said to him, what do you think is the reason that nobody wants it and we want it so desperately Mm -hmm. and he said because there's no chandelier dropping there's no helicopter on stage (laughs) this isn't a big production and that's what they had been seeing and we thought oh my god we're ready, because this, everything had been production-driven. This was performance-driven. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the, the original production in 75 with Jerry Orbach was successful, but not a smash hit. It wasn't a big, big hit. And it was fully produced on stage. So what did you see in this, other than what you've already said, that you said to yourselves, we're going to make money on this. This is going to be a success. Well, because-
3: as I said, it was performance-driven. It was about the actors, And in one costume, one set, the orchestra on stage, you had a focus on the performances. Mm -hmm. And in the last five or six years, as I said, they they really focused on the look of the show, the production itself. And I also think it had a lot to Mm -hmm. say. It was at the time right after O.J., It was really about if you're a celebrity and you have a great lawyer, you might get away with murder, (laughs) which is exactly what our show was about. So I think it just was cynical enough, smart enough, mean and lean enough. It just clicked, and I can't believe... It's 10 years.
0: <laughs> and As we talk about 10 years, we're going back to Encores itself was very new. This was within the first couple of seasons of Encores. At That's that true. Point. Yes. So there wasn't what's now become, Encores has become a place, largely due to the success of Chicago, that people go and look and say, gee, are there shows that we should revive? But resisting the temptation to fully stage it, did you at any point say, no, we want to realize it more fully and, and move it a little out of the concert and,
2: and into a conventional production? That's such a good question, Howard. Fran and I never for one moment wanted to change the style of the piece. We'd been trying to do Chicago for years, but we knew we needed a special cast and a style, and we couldn't get it. It was just serendipitous that we went on course that day, that they have an orchestra on stage which forces the action down, and just by, well, good taste, I would say, Anne ranking, B.B. Newworth, James Norton, and Joel Grey, they're on stage with a really, really superb uh, chorus ensemble. And it was there. It was almost as if it was wrapped up and handed to us. Uh, but once we tried to raise money to put it on Broadway, Howard the question you asked became relevant because most of the people we went to wanted sets they wanted costumes they wanted the cast changed they didn't feel this was the right cast so we just stood our ground put most of the money up ourselves isn't that nice it turned out to be a smart <laughs> <Or> business <laughs> is. decision what even, a shame. Though, even though what is the rule from the producers <laughs> never put your own uh, money in a show no. you know we, we don't believe in that credo a friend and I put our money in every show we do or we wouldn't be doing the show We believe passionately in each piece we put on stage. But there were people, Howard, that tried to stop us. And, of course, the rest is history. We opened, and there you go.
0: Well, as we talk about the history, there there are elements of, of your production of Chicago that we can look at and say, boy, these were really groundbreaking. The first being the ad campaign. You went with a campaign that didn't look a lot. Like a Broadway show. You had very sexy, very stark photos. Of, of some of the women in the show, as well as, as um, the stars from the very beginning. Was that a choice to try to break out of, of the typical Broadway advertising?
2: No, that wasn't a choice. I try, and Fran tries, to give an organic look and feel marketing-wise to each one of our productions. If you go back to Greece, you'll see the fun we had marketing that show. Falsettos, was a different story and a different style. Uh, no, I, I hired a gentleman named Max Viducal, who's a world-class photographer. And Max said, "What do you see? What is it? What result do you want from me?" And I said, "I want the show to have style, danger, and sexuality." And uh, I think we achieved that. So, so the next
0: element of the show's success, now over its ten years, that people talk about in the theater community, and I think on message boards, is the casting. You obviously had a phenomenal original company, but you don't retain a company for 10 years. We've seen a succession of high-profile names, some familiar from the theater, some making their theater debuts coming into the show. What has your process been for, for finding these performers?
3: Well, first of all, Barry and I have a list. Um, of every sh- every show we do, we always have a list of who should be in the cast, but we also have fantastic casting directors. Um, we had a casting director um, that really really i think at the beginning it was Jay Binder was it not and now um, subsequently, we are with james caleri who 's keeping the show. Uh, going for us over a period of of years now. And so I think between the casting director and Barry and myself and our general manager and everyone in the office who has an idea, including the janitor, we really decide who's going to be in it. And uh, even though, as you say, we do look for names because names do sell tickets, and uh, ultimately it's not about us, it's about putting um, bodies in seats— but we've never hired anyone. I don't believe in any of our shows that didn't have the goods. So even though they may be names, we want we want to make sure that these are names that really have the talent to do it. This was a hard show because it's a dance show, it's a singing show, and it's an acting show. Some are a little less that they don't. You don't need to have all three components to to produce a show. But this one. You really had to cast it so carefully and over a period of ten years we have worked really hard uh, really hard, as has um, James uh, and his crew to keep it going
0: so do people like Melanie Griffith and Ashley Simpson and uh, usher come in and actually give a conventional audition since since you don't necessarily know that they've done this mm, yes and
2: no yes and no uh, wh- when you're when you're dealing with someone like Melanie Griffith? It wasn't a matter of auditioning her, and she was very open to this process. It was a matter of working with her so that she could feel comfortable that she could cut uh, the material on stage, and we could be comfortable putting it on her. So Melanie trained on the West Coast for almost six months. Then we went into rehearsal, but it wasn't until she and I agreed that she could do it that we actually – set set a date for her to come into the show
1: so when you bring these people in who are not known as theater performers who may not have some of the same skills that a person who grew up in the theater would have do you have to make any changes in the show itself to accommodate them or do they have to learn to do the moves the dance moves the singing that sort of thing
2: by dint of their personality things change Usher is a fantastic dancer. So things get added. They are sculpted a little, a little differently than we might for Huey Lewis, who's a wonderful singer. But basically, the show stays the same, and it stays the same throughout the world, John. We've done this production. I can't count the many, many countries and cities we've done it in, but we must have done it in 12 languages by now. In every major city in the world, uh, I wanted to play Iceland. Just once, <laughs> just so to I say could say, I know <laughs> that we've hit every continent in the, in the world, uh, but uh, that still wait waits to be done. But I have to go up there, I guess, and, and play for explorers for one night. What's really <laughs>
3: exciting is when Barry and I travel uh, to see the show. We may not go to Buffalo, but we go to Russia uh-huh. uh, just to hear it in different yeah. languages. I think when I just mentioned Russia, because I think it was the most exciting and passionate of all. We never expected it. But in Russian, and, and the passion of those actors and the excitement uh, that they brought, and we were very concerned about our audience, that they'd all sort of sit there with their hands folded and sort of a stolid kind of group they were amazing. I mean, being in Russia was an experience for us. But we have been wherever it's exciting to go, Barry and I go. And we've seen it in France and French and in Spanish and in Russian and in Swedish and, of course, in in London, where it's now in its ninth year, by the way. And, of course, in English and here and there.
1: Of, Of the various countries, what's the toughest audience?
2: Oh, that's, that's a good question. Uh, it did not work well in Italy. Really? Surprisingly enough, they didn't accept it. I thought, oh, this was a slam dunk, you know, uh-huh. sexuality and uh-huh. danger and uh, uh, very few costumes on all of our actors and actresses. But, no, they just didn't. I don't know what it was about the Italians.
3: It just didn't take. I don't uh, think they love theater so much as they do opera. Uh-huh. I mean, um, and. and yep, they love sex, Fran. They love sex, but maybe but, <laughs> maybe but, in the house and uh, not on the stage. Well, <laughs> that could be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, friend, your 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 point about loving opera—big, huge sets, big casts yeah. and all that—and this is the this kind is of the anti- antithesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: it really is. That's the true, John.
2: Yeah. yeah, I don't know. That was a big surprise to us. Paris was okay. It wasn't the greatest uh, uh, city in which we performed. It was okay, and we had a marvelous company there. Well,
0: you said that you don't adapt, really, the show here in the U.S. as different actors come in and out. But do you think it's a case of it's a business issue when you play these other cities, or is it a content issue, that there's a different reaction
2: to this material based on the cultural situation you're in? Well, the two cities I just named, Paris and Rome, were the only difficult stops we've had in 10 years. Uh, we have succeeded everywhere else, and that means Seoul, Korea, Tokyo, Singapore, Hong Kong, Brazil, Argentina. I can go on and on and on. We've had raging successes, but not in those two countries. But do you think... It, the show is seen the same way in all of those other
0: countries where it succeeded, or do different things become important? I assume you have reviews translated for you or feature yeah. stories translated. Do people react to the show differently, or are they all seeing it as, as the same indictment of, of fame and, and I, I celebrity? I do think
2: basically they see it the same way. Uh, in, in some countries, I think they're more excited by the entertainment value and the wonderful choreography. Um, And the sizzle that's on stage, but basically they see it the same way. Uh, There is no difference in the world when it comes to the justice system or man-woman relationships. Uh, I think Chicago the film has played throughout the world just as well as the stage play. So, no, they see it the same way, Howard, but some some are a little more mm, sophisticated in a different way. Uh, the French see life differently and the Italians see life differently. And the
3: Brazilians
2: love Chicago. <laughs>
3: what was exciting, though, we still went to Rome and Paris. Had <laughs> <laughs> to go see the that show, was, right? Oh, <laughs> my goodness, yes. <laughs> that was the wouldn't thi- miss it. <laughs>
0: well, since you brought it up, Barry in the list of the elements of things that have made this show one of the great long runners of Broadway is the fact that the film appeared partway through the run. And can you talk about what has been the effect of the film? Do you now have people going in looking to say, how is it different? How is the same? or And, mm-hmm. and did people come in Surprised at how different this production is than what they saw on screen?
3: I don't know that, but I do know that. Barry Mm. and I loved the film. I mean, I thought the film was just terrific. I thought the actors were wonderful. Um, I I was very pleased with the film. And we only did well because of the film. We did better. I mean, sometimes a film comes out and you think, oh, my God, why are they going to spend close to $100 to see a live performance when they can see... Mm. A film and with, a, the, with a huge screen uh, for 8 9 or $10. And
1: also kind of the corollary on that. If it's a bad film, it could kill the show. It could kill That's you. True.
3: All I know is the film was good. It was well-received. Um, it was well-produced. And it did really well for us. I mean, we people just came in droves who had seen the film and then wanted to see the live performance. There is nothing really, mm. for me anyway better than seeing a live performance it's really there's nothing it's never quite the same i remember someone asking me once what do the actors feel doing the same show over and over and over mm-hmm. again eight times a week week after week and one of the actors i remember said to me but you don't understand every night we play a different audience they've never seen us mm-hmm. before So it's that excitement of playing to – and every night something happens, something – some little thing happens that changes it. That makes it endlessly interesting.
1: You're talking about the, the casting in the movie, we talked a few minutes ago about the casting at Encores, which seemed like a hell of a good cast. Anne Ranking, B.B. Newworth, James Norton, Joel Gray. And you said that there was some resistance to taking those people from Encores onto Broadway. They weren't big enough. I mean hindsight is twenty twenty, but it sounds like you had a terrific cast going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was what was the resistance?
2: Well, you you can see we stood our ground. Yeah. Uh, that that's uh, history. Uh, There were people that just felt we needed major stars, that we had to have Michael Douglas playing uh, Mm -hmm. Billy Flynn and uh, whomever else was the famous female star 10 years ago, and we just didn't see it that way. We -hmm. took a chance on another production in the same manner. It was called Falsettos, Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful piece of theater, one of the finest Evenings of theater that Fran and I have ever been connected to. And there was another situation where, oh my goodness, what was it, 15 years ago we did that, uh, where people just thought we were out of our minds. uh, That it spoke of the gay community, it spoke of AIDS, uh, uh, there were uh, two male lovers on stage. uh, It was sung through without any um, uh, spoken narrative or dialogue. And uh, we just saw it as a beautiful, beautiful statement of life. And we wanted to do it, and no one would give us the money. And again, we put most of the money up ourselves, and it was very successful.
1: And now with Chicago, here we are looking at the 10th anniversary. Yeah. And in hindsight... Who knew it was going to last that long? What are you planning for the, for, for the, for the performance on November 14th? Oh. It's a big star-studded performance.
2: Yes, absolutely. Every star that's been in the production here and in a few other cities of the world are coming in, uh, and we've uh, paused the script so that all of them get a short moment on stage, some a little longer, some mm-hmm. some shorter, but it should be quite a celebration that night.
1: Well, I think to illustrate the work, of Chicago and the work of John Kander and Fred Ebb, I'd like to play a song from the Revival CD, which has just been reissued mm-hmm. now as a three-disc uh, set, two yes. CDs, one the cast album, one a bunch of interviews, and a third a DVD.
2: That's right. Well, no, the DVD has the interviews, but the, the second CD uh, is uh, single cuts by all the stars right. that were not in the original in the album. Original, yeah. It's quite exciting. It's a big and box a set. a beautiful book inside, uh, a coffee table style book.
1: Right. I think the song that probably epitomizes the show is Razzle Dazzle. That's oh, kind of what yeah. it's all about. So yeah. let's listen to Razzle Dazzle and we'll come back and chat some more. Great. Of course, from Chicago, the current revival now facing its 10th anniversary on November 14th. That's Razzle Dazzle. We're chatting with the producers, Fran and Barry Weisler.
0: We're talking, obviously, about an enormous musical success on Broadway, but John mentioned at the very beginning your first Broadway credit, which was Othello with James Earl Jones and Christopher Plummer. Mm-hmm. And But your history in the theater certainly goes back before your first Broadway show. How did the two of
2: you begin producing? Oh, an interesting question. Let's see. I was an actor at the time, uh, and since I couldn't get any work, uh, it was uh, uh, more advantageous for me to form my own acting company so I could hire myself. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) that was a, a group called the National Shakespeare Company, which goes back to the very early 60s. And uh, I met Fran during those years uh, as I toured the country. She lived in New Jersey, and we were playing a theater in her community. That's and was how she in theater met. also? Uh,
3: no, no, not at all. Not in the least. Nope. I was married and had two children. Uh. And That changed. <laughs> I, I, apparently. Not the children. I hope. <laughs> uh, and,
2: and one thing led to another. I began to direct. Uh, after I met Fran. And that was the uh, joy of my creative life. And I directed for many, many years. And all of the shows we did in those days, Fran and I managed and produced, and I directed all of them. So I must have directed about 150 different productions. And at what
0: level are you doing this? This is a small touring company. You're, are you playing big halls? Are you playing schools? What are, what are,
2: where are you playing? All schools. All schools. And we discovered that there was the least red tape in the Catholic school system. school Hmm. So uh, uh, two lovely Jewish people (laughs) from West Orange, New Jersey, found ourselves in monasteries and convents and uh, uh, schools all day long, booking our shows for the next season. And
3: all classics?
2: Uh, Well, the the first one was Everyman, the medieval uh, allegory. Which is
3: read in every every Catholic high school in the country. Hmm. So we had found that out Hmm. from a very kind nun who met with us and said, if you really want to sell out your uh, the schools and, and appeal to the principals in the English department. Every man is read, and it's very difficult. And if you staged it, it might be so much more interesting. The English department could teach it so much more easily once they see it on stage. Mm. So our very first show was for the Catholic school system, and it was every man, and we went home and did all our homework on it, and Barry directed it. And we cast it, and that was our very first show.
0: And what are you doing? Barry's directing. You're working managing, uh, uh, organizing? Well, we were,
3: I was producing with him. Okay. We were co-producing, and, and he directed the first show. And uh, we also had to decide where we're playing. So every Friday, <clears throat> frankly, I called 32 schools. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Barry and I visited eight schools a day. We went from nine in the morning till three. Then we came home because our kids got home from school, and we were with them, and we had an early dinner, and then from like six to nine, we went to the convents and the rectories. And that's when we sold. We we, we were irresistible. We were young then. (laughs) (laughs) We were hungry we were starving, and, uh, and, and, and they really were interested, and they wanted that particular show. So it was very exciting. But, but that was he- on the
2: high school level. Yes. We also had an elementary school uh, company that did Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Swiss Family Robinson, uh, Oliver Twist, and those children's classics. Uh, and then we finally raised the bar to the uh, junior colleges and college level, Where we did Shakespeare, Neil Simon, um, uh, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller. uh, And that went on on for a number of years.
3: 15 years, I think. And we
2: had some wonderful actors with us. Uh, Robert De Niro uh, got his first acting job. with us, the doing what? Well, what was the What <laughs> was uh, it was the boar. Chekhov's the boar or the bear. It's uh, you, the, both names are your titles are used, but uh, Wh- played, which was
1: not done in elementary school, was it? No, no that, that was <laughs> that was, <laughs> high, was high, high, schools. Schools. high school. High
2: uh, school. Bobby was a dear friend of mine. We matriculated through acting school together with uh-huh. Stella Adler, uh-huh. so I knew Robert, and it was you know no-brainer to put him in the company. We paid Bob. I think 50 or $60 a week. Dollars. And Thank he you. had to help me load the U uh, It Presumably, was, we're still in the 60s here. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Because he got a call from a fellow named Brian De Palma. <laughs> I remember <laughs> when we were in Gladstone, PPAC,
3: playing at right. Catholic Girls High School. And he came to us, I remember, and said, I got this call from this director, Brian De Palma, to do this. A movie called Greetings. You oh, was the Greetings or it Mean Streets. Stre- it, it was Greetings. It, it, was, Palma, remember. it was Greetings. He it was, was De Palma, it was
2: Greetings. Scorsese him. was Mean Streets. Mm-hmm. Yes.
3: Well, <laughs> it might have been him. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, no. It doesn't
2: matter. One or the other. <laughs> I, kno-
3: I know it was <laughs> Greetings. And, and he came to us and said, I have a chance to do that. And I remember Barry mm-hmm. looking at him and said, You'd rather do that? Then Chekhov? (laughs) Anyway, he went back to him and said, my producers aren't going to let me out because I have to play Mm -hmm. the Catholic school's system during the day with Chekhov. And I remember Brian De Palma shot around our school schedule so he Mm -hmm. could do greetings and for... Bobby De Niro, the rest is history. Any I mean, that was <laughs> it for him.
1: Any chance we'll ever see him as Billy Flynn?
3: <laughs> oh, I, I, rather, doubt <laughs> I, I rather doubt it. I rather doubt it. Great, great
1: actor. <laughs> you had said before yeah. that the the Catholic schools were the easiest, the least resistance. Was that because of the material that you were bringing to them? No, because what
3: happened is that um, when we started to sell. The school system, because we we knew we couldn't go to Broadway right away. We had two kids, and we were concerned about you could you could um, open a show, close it, and you're starving in a garret. It mm. may be fun with two people, but with four, it isn't so much fun. So we went. We figured the schools would never close, so we went to the public schools in our area, and we found out that the public school system cannot charge during school hours because one parent can have five kids, one can be poor, one can be rich. It just wasn't democratic to charge during school hours. So we really didn't know what to do, and we were sort of desperate. And I remember calling a very close friend of mine. Uh, My best friend happened to be Catholic, and I was speaking to her and whining about what are we going to do when we're married and we have no money and we're eating baked beans all the time. (laughs) What are we going to do? And she said, why don't you go to the Catholic schools. I mean, the Catholic schools will charge during school hours. And that was our first appointment in a Catholic school. And we charged a dollar a student, and over a period of 10 weeks, they charged the student 10 cents a week. 10 cents a week, you can afford. So they
0: were paying for theater on the installment system. On the installment plan, uh, but they
3: saw theater. And not only did we Mm -hmm. bring them a show... But Barry and I had symposiums at the end where the actors came out and talked to the students, and we sent study guides prior to that. So, months before the show, they got a study guide. So, we were really very careful to do it right, and we did it, as Barry said, for 15 years.
0: So you're enterprising, you've figured out a system, you work from literally elementary school to high school to, to the college level, but clearly there's some missing link here. How did you go from these school performances
2: to, to producing commercially? Well, first of all, Howard, during those 10 or 15 years, we didn't realize until later that we were training ourselves to do the theatre we can now accomplish. Uh, if, if you're playing student audiences, you get a true spontaneous reaction, and you had better be good. If you bore those kids, you're finished. And we were, after, after a number of years, uh, we were the most sought-after uh, theater company in the school system, and we were working from one coast to the other, and we were putting on 18 productions a year. That's how successful we had become. And the success came because we did good work for these young people, and they enjoyed it, and they looked forward to seeing us again. So we didn't realize that our instincts and our taste were being honed by what we were doing in those years. And then came a time that we started playing the colleges and fine arts centers, and we started doing one-person shows with stars, Uh, Julie Harris and the Bell of Amherst, uh, James Earl Jones and Paul Robeson, uh, Leslie Nielsen and Clarence Darrow, and in those days, Leslie couldn't remember a line. It was really difficult. He's famous now, isn't he, with uh, (laughs) his wonderful comedic films? Uh, One day, James Earl Jones called us and said that uh, Paul Robeson's son has threatened his life and said that if he goes out with the show one more year, he would kill him. And James knew he was serious. He said he pulled a forty-five Magnum on me. I know this man is very, very serious about this, and I don't want to face the possibility. And I'm sorry to do this to you, too, but I want you to cancel the tour. And Fran and I, he was the biggest star we had in in those days. And Fran and I knew that we would be losing uh, all of our income for the year based on his pulling out. But we allowed it, and he said to us, I owe you one. Hmm. And I was racking my brain trying to figure out what to do, and Fran and I talked about it and talked about it. And I was looking in the paper one day and realized that uh, Christopher Plummer – was the star of the Stratford Shakespeare Festival for that season?
0: This is the Stratford, Connecticut. <clears throat> in Stratford, in the days Connecticut, that existed.
2: and they were doing an entire season with Christopher as the star of each show. I think it was Henry the Part One and Two. I called and spoke to a fellow named Charlie Parker, and said to Charlie, "I wonder if you'd be interested in throwing one of the productions out and putting on Othello? I can guarantee you." I hoped uh, (laughs) I I could fulfill this. I could guarantee you uh, James Earl Jones. And they immediately took to it. So I called James. He said, yes, that I would like to do. We brought him up to Stratford. He played it with uh, Christopher Plummer. Uh, We unfortunately got rid of the director, who is a very, very tough English fellow, uh, and hired Zoe Caldwell, because the show just wasn't good enough, not for Broadway, at least. Zoe came in, cleaned it up. We put Diane Wiest in as uh, Desdemona. We redid the sets and costumes, went out on the road, and had an enormous success. It was probably the highest-grossing Shakespearean production of all times. We were filling two to 3,000-seat houses all over the United States. And, of course, the, the rest was history. We thought, why not? We'll tr- take a chance, bring it into the, um, where were we? The Winter, Winter Garden. Garden, right before Cats. And uh, we opened in a snowstorm in February 1982, and we had lines around the block and sold the production out. And that was it, it, Howard? And the same season? And our
3: first Tony. That was our first Tony. And the same season,
2: you did Medea? Yes, because we had Zoe. With Zoe Caldwell, because we had become friendly through Othello. She was doing that at the Kennedy Center, so we brought that in. And Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, a gospel show. So that was the first year.
1: Now, did you put your own money into those two shows Um,
2: at that point? I'm sure we put something in, but I don't. I but don't think you, you we had. You got
1: to go find backers. <clears throat> yeah. So right. here you are, neophytes on on Broadway. You've got tons of experience doing Catholic schools and universities mm. all over the country. How did you raise the money then? How did you go in and say, "Give us some money to put us on Broadway"?
2: Well, uh, for Othello, uh, after we saw the success of the production on the road, I went to CBS. Uh, Oh, I can't remember the title of the division. Mm-hmm. But it was their fine arts um, um, televised uh, uh, division uh, where they televised classical works. A fellow named Cy si Leslie. At least I remember his name. Uh, and uh, I convinced them that this was the way to go and they could film the production. And uh, James and Christopher made a deal for so doing, and they gave us all the money. And that's how we got it
3: on the Broadway stage. Also, so Med- we had James O. Jones and Chris Plummer. It wasn't exactly yeah. uh, chopped, uh, liver. chopped liver. <laughs> so, so it wasn't
2: that difficult to raise the money for that production. Medea was much more difficult. Right. But I had Roger Stevens as a partner, and together we cobbled the money together. Uh, And Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, we had already produced and was on the road before it came into New York. That's how we did
1: that. As I'm sitting here listening to you talking about Chicago, how you took a show which was, some said understage should have had bigger sets and bigger this and bigger that, how you found a way to approach Catholic schools and universities, and now you're going Mm. through CBS, which is not known as a Broadway producer. It seems like you think outside the box quite a bit. You you find expedient ways to get things done. Is that that basically true, do you think?
2: I, I don't know, John. We just... Do it, and I guess you can look back at it now well, and say that's outside the box. Well, may, may, maybe logical. I should say
1: that you make opportunities for yourselves. You you create opportunities.
3: Perhaps, yeah. yeah. I won't argue that point. In <laughs> fact, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. you, you kind of like I that. Think okay. I think we do. Okay, we do.
0: As we talk about transitions, it's interesting that, of course, you had your roots in doing primarily classical and dramatic work, certainly plays, and your your first productions on Broadway were classic plays. But fairly quickly, you transitioned into focusing on musicals. And I'm wondering whether that was a conscious business choice, or you just had an opportunity to do work
2: you hadn't been able to do before. But uh, that's not quite true, Howard. Uh, you, I don't know what you have on that list. I'm but certainly there was
0: skipping f- over things like The Macbeth and The Cat on the Hot Tin Roof.
2: Full mm-hmm. you you know, know, Gallop with Mary there. Louise Wilson. Mm-hmm. This Is Our Youth with Mark Ruffalo. Um, uh, what else have we done, Fran, play-wise? Can you help me? Well,
3: we just said Cat on the Hot Tin Roof with Kathleen right. Turner mm-hmm.
2: and... Uh, uh, um, My thing of love, right, which is right. not, which was not terribly successful. So, so we have gone into uh, dramatic renderings, also, Howard.
3: Mm-hmm. No, but we have done a, a, many musicals. I think um, we're really interested in in the American public um, seeing our work and hopefully enjoying our work. And it seems to me that most people, if they have the money to go to the theater, they go on an anniversary, they go on a birthday, they go once or twice a year, the, the, the average person. And um, what are they going to go see? I mean, th- once or twice a year, they're going to go see a musical. And mm-hmm. I'd like it to be ours. <laughs> so one of the things that we enjoy, and I love the collaboration with, between uh, not only the, the book writer but the uh, lyricist and the composer and the director and the choreographer. It's a very exciting collaboration that we're, that we're part of. So I love all that, and I think most people love musicals.
1: Well, you get down the list of musicals. I may, I may miss a few. Sweet Charity, Wonderful Town. And I purposely, I'm purposely skipping uh, uh Sweet Charity, Wonderful Town, Annie Get Your Gun, Chicago, Grease, My Fair Lady, Fiddler on the Roof, Gypsy, Cabaret. They all have the word revival next to them. Mm. Any reason for choosing revivals rather than going for original work?
2: Uh, we, we've been working on originals. Uh, it's very, very difficult. No, I'm, not,
1: I'm not saying that you haven't been, but I'm saying these are all revivals, <coughs> most of them very successful revivals.
2: Well, the, the truth be known, we have a, a reasonably sized company. Uh, we have a, a fairly substantial overhead. Uh, and in order to keep us intact, we have to do work year in and year out. Uh, the revivals you just read off that list were the ones that came to mind at the time uh, to keep uh, cash flow going. Uh, and also to uh, 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 allow our creative juices to flow. But while those things were being done, we were always working on new musicals or new plays. Uh, it's just difficult to grow a new project for Broadway. You
3: know, and I, I always resent um, even the word revival. I don't know why. I always think it's, it sounds as like it's a little demeaning and I always thought, well, what about opera? I mean, Carmen and Madam Butterfly. Mm-hmm. Nobody says, oh, it's, we're bringing a revival of Carmen. It's like the greatest thing. Or Shakespeare. If you consider Macbeth, if you consider As You Like It, if you consider Hamlet, I mean, those are mm-hmm. great, great classics. I, frankly, and I think Barry, too, I really am so proud to be bringing certain great shows, Fiddler on the Roof and Gypsy, and Sweet Charity, and Chicago, when you think of the, of, of a, a whole new generation of theatergoers that get to see great classics, I, I think it's kind of exciting to be doing them. As far as new shows, we got involved with maybe 20 new shows. Something always happened that made it not uh, possible to bring it to the front, I don't know what it was, whether we lost the director, whether we reread the script 30 times, decided it wasn't going to work. There were always reasons. And as Barry said, we have to feel very passionate about what we do because it's so damn hard. And if you don't love it, you might as well not do it.
1: Well, taking the word revival out of the equation, <laughs> let's just say new productions of classic material. Uh, virtually all the shows that I mentioned are shows that you feel good when you leave the theater. You can leave humming the songs and all that. Do you choose them because they're kind of like an old shoe, they're comfortable, the audience knows them and they'll, they'll go back to see them?
2: No, no. not at all, John. Uh, we choose them because they're the best uh, of what has been created in the musical theater. And uh, we, since we weren't there at the beginning, we'd like to be touched by that genius of uh, the Gershwins uh, or uh, uh, Joe Stein and uh, Bach Honick, uh, John Kander, Fred Ebb. So we take the best Of what's available. And then, if we can cast it properly and bring in a key director, uh, we do it because it's worth doing. And I can, you know, John, when you're doing a show, revival or new show, you have to sit there in rehearsals and previews a hundred times, 200 times. And Fran and I draw a line at being bored by our own work. Mm -hmm. So, if we're going to sit there a hundred times to watch a show, it better be good. And that's why those were chosen.
0: John skipped over in his list of, of the musicals he was reading. He said purposely he was skipping over Susicle. I want to ask about Susicle because it's an interesting case of a show that didn't have the longest life on Broadway, but is now grown to have an enormous afterlife. That's right. Do you think that there's enough opportunity now... For the material on Broadway, when you can find something that's obviously connected with an audience above and beyond its Broadway life, do you think that the marketplace is just growing so difficult that that new work can't be seen for itself?
2: No, no. It, it is growing more difficult, Howard. That's true. Economically, it's becoming impossible uh, to produce as we've produced in years past. Uh, it's getting silly I mean, the, you, you should see the cost of a show nowadays against what we paid 10 years ago and 20 years ago. Uh, the costs are running exponentially. And not just uh, labor costs, but advertising uh, is a terrible, terrible impediment uh, to keeping your budget in line. Uh, and since all of the theaters are booked now the theater owners uh, are coming in with a sledgehammer. So it's no longer a buyer's market. It's a seller's market. And the cost of shows are growing terribly high. So that, that makes it a little difficult to keep producing. But I forgot why I got on this pack. What was the... the th- well,
0: just asking about the receptivity to new material or the ability to do new material on
2: Broadway. It's so hot. So you, you've answered it. Yep, it's hot. Suzical <laughs> is a fun uh, case. Uh, it should be a big Harvard business case. Here's a show that we took over in Boston, which was having terrible problems. I thought we fixed it admirably, truly a beautiful production. Rob Marshall came in, did some wonderful, wonderful work. Uh, we opened uh, to tremendously enthusiastic audiences, and the critics came in and in their uh, elitist manner butchered us killed us. So what happened on this production, and listen, I only blame us. If if we don't get it right, it's our fault. The critics can't make or break you. But what happened in this case when you're dealing with family entertainment is they turned off the adult audience for Monday through Thursday nights. And what happened is we sold the families out Friday through Sunday. It just wasn't enough. But it was good enough to prove that once it went out on the road, tour-wise, or leased summer stock, high schools, elementary schools. It is the most leased property, the most licenses of any show in the United States today. So it proves that there was a desire to see this production in one form or another. Uh, but, you know, here, here you're dealing with a strange thing. Now, Bernadette Peters and Annie Get Your Gun Again, we got very, very bad reviews. They panned us. Uh, Ben Brantley was quite mean that day. Uh, Although I like him, I think he's a wonderful critic. Um, What happened is we had Bernadette Peters, we had Annie Get Your Gun, we had a good production, and we sold out. It didn't matter what Ben Brantley said or what the others said. But with Susical, it mattered. So it's a mixed bag.
3: We also, if I had to do it over again... Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had Tuesday and Wednesday performances. We would have had maybe two Friday two Saturday, three Saturday. two Sunday yeah so because it, it was a fa- yeah it was a family audience and we didn't quite we did a normal uh, mm-hmm. run, and we should have really catered only... Nobody wanted to come with a date. It wasn't that kind of a show they felt, especially based mm-hmm. on the reviews. But even without them, I think people needed to come with their children, and we should have we should have done that. So that was our fault.
2: Well, equity doesn't allow that, Fran, but we certainly could have fought the issue. You mentioned a
0: critic. Um, you're two most recent Broadway productions have gone even beyond critical commentary to frankly become, to some degree, tabloid fodder. (laughs) How does that impact? We're talking about Wonderful Town, where there was a lot of of sniping about Donna Murphy's illness and her absences from the show, and Sweet Charity, which of course had Christina Applegate's injury. How do you produce amidst that kind of scrutiny? Not critical scrutiny, but... uh, but commentary on how you're doing what you do and and the problems becoming so
3: public. Well, Wonderful Town, I'll I'll speak of, uh, and then Barry can can address the other. Wonderful Town, we got rave reviews. We got, I mean, the, the Times was wonderful to us. And they adored Donna Murphy. They adored her. And she is the one that walked away with the reviews. And subsequent to the review, she missed 71 performances. We couldn't recover because people came to the box office to see a star that wasn't really a star like Bernadette Peters was considered a Broadway star. The Review made her a star. So people came to see her, and she wasn't on. So everybody was getting refunds and getting their money back, and and then the word got out. Is she going to be there? People would call the box office and say, do you think Donna's going to be in the show? So, unfortunately, I think, Mm -hmm. honestly, we would have had a hit if she had been well and healthy and wonderful, and people would have Mm -hmm. come, and I think we would have had a hit show because it was a marvelous show.
1: How about Brooke Shields? She did very well in in the show.
3: Very very well. Yes, yes, yes. She does, she does well in everything. She's marvelous. Continues to show her
2: metal. She's, she's quite a wonderful, wonderful stage performer coming into her own now.
3: And a wonderful person.
1: And kind of casting against type, casting her as the plain sister. <laughs> 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 Speaking of wonderful town... That's the second of two shows, Chicago being the first, that you took from Encores. Uh, obviously, they'd been produced on Broadway before. Encores did them. But they were both redone by Encores. And in the case of Wonderful Town, Kathleen Marshall uh, directed and choreographed that for you and kept some of the same elements that she had in Encores, uh, more scenery, of course, and more costuming. Um, why those two shows and not at some of the other Encores performances over the years?
2: Well, I think, Fran, and I felt those two shows worked. And the others uh, were fine to watch for one night, but uh, should not be taken further. It was just a choice, Fran. Just, just I a made. judgment call. Yep. Right. Now, Pajama Game, on the other hand, was another one that uh, came out of uh, Encores. And even though they changed it dramatically, they still had Kathleen Marshall, the original creator. So there was a third one that came out. Not, not through you, though. No. I wish. <laughs>
1: no. You wish. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one final thing on, on, on Sweet Charity. How did you recover after Christina Applegate had her injury? There was oh. as have always, have always had a lot of tabloid fodder, so to speak.
2: Well, that, that was a difficult one to, to assess because I thought that uh, we had put on um, a lovely, lovely creation of Sweet Charity. I thought it worked. I thought it was entertaining. And I thought the audiences loved being in the theater. What happened in this particular instance is there were a lot of productions that were being held over from years past, which was very unusual for Broadway. Uh, The hit shows were running and still are running today, which is a difference in the playing aspect of Broadway. Shows are not leaving their facility as quickly. So there were a lot of choices to be made, and we became a secondary or tertiary uh, choice. And, uh, Howard, back to your question about the tabloid, reporting, there was so much written about poor Christina Applegate's foot that they could have gone one of two ways. They could have said, this wonderful woman is brave and courageous and she's out there hoofing anyway and she's very good or they could have said, you know all we hear about is her foot and frankly you know, she's not Gwen Verdon and she doesn't dance well enough and she has a broken foot. And they took the the latter tack, unfortunately and that did us harm. And the fact that there were so many choices sort of pushed us into the background, so although we ran well over a year, which was nice, and we 're on the road right now doing beautifully around the United States, sometimes it's uh, it 's difficult how to uh, combat uh, this gossip that leaks out
3: and what killed us was and killed Christine is Christina is a dancer. she started out her career as a dancer when she auditioned for us for Sweet Charity. She was brilliant. I mean, we just—we just couldn't believe what a fabulous—and here she opens up, and practically immediately she breaks her foot. It was—it was heartbreaking.
0: That's part of the excitement of live theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> we just have a minute before we have to let you go with all of your productions around the world. Mm-hmm. But we have to ask, since we've, we've alluded to it a couple of times, coming back to Chicago as as it approaches its tenth anniversary. Um, You mentioned that you've tried to get Robert De Niro, but he's not coming. Uh, Are there people you've desperately tried to get to come into Chicago who just aren't giving you a tumble? And can you tell us a few of the people on the wish list you're still looking
2: for? Um, Let's see if I can uh, scratch my memory here. Uh, One couple that I've tried to get time after time is... Melanie back again, but this time with her dear husband Antonio Banderas mm. playing Billy Flynn. Wow! Uh, and I've tried to get them for for New York and uh, London, but uh, Antonio's not biting. And I, I would love to have Michael Douglas and Katherine Zeta-Jones do it. I think that would be a terrific idea. Uh, Frank, can you
3: think of any other I actors and could. actresses?
2: A I mean, Howard, after Usher, we have to relax a little. <laughs> bit, you know? But what's
3: exciting, though, after Usher is Bibi is going to be coming in soon oh, that's right. to mm. play Roxy, wow. which is really exciting and, and really a big stretch for a terrific actress. Also, I can't leave um, Talks of Chicago without mentioning Walter Bobby and Ann Ranking. I mean, they really gave us this production. They're both brilliant. What they did is brilliant, they've become very good friends. And they deserve great congratulations for this anniversary, certainly as much as Barry and me.
1: And great congratulations to the two of you, well, thank Fran you. and Barry Weisler, for your tenth anniversary of Chicago coming up, but also for all your other accomplishments on Broadway and in Catholic schools everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. <laughs>
2: Thank, thank you, John.
0: Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Thanks, Howard. Barry. Thanks, Fran. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.